Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, to today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. I'm Jai Young Fan, a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine, author of a book that is currently non-existent um, uh, that hopefully will, will, will come into being sometime um, uh, next year called Motherland. The club would like to thank the Asian Pacific Affairs Forum for supporting today's event. And it is my great pleasure to introduce Josh Chen and Liza Lin, authors of Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Josh serves as the Deputy Bureau Chief in China for the Wall Street Journal. He is a national fellow at New America and recipient of the Dan Boyle's Prize uh, Medal awarded to investigative journalists who exhibited courage in standing up to intimidation. And Liza is China um, is the China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, and previously worked at Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Television. Liza was part of the investigative team led by Josh that won the Gerald Loeb Award for International Reporting in 2018 for a series exposing the Chinese government's pioneering embrace of digital surveillance. Josh and Liza, uh, welcome. Um, it is. Uh, it's so strange. I mean, I'm in New York um, to uh, still be doing to be doing um, a Zoom event when, like, just outside, like, literally in the bar below my apartment, there are like a hundred people packed indoors. Um, so let me acknowledge um, the strangeness um, of um, of the kind of the the. The zoomness of this event, but it's quite fitting with the with the book um, about um, digitalization of control and um, surveillance. And uh, I would like to um, start by just uh, asking um, Josh and Liza how um, you know you became interested in writing a book. I know that you know um, both of you have done terrific. Uh, pieces on surveillance in Xinjiang um, and in China, but what made it worth it for you guys to, you know, invest so much of your time and energy and um, into into putting this into um, together into a book? Right. So um, thanks, John. It's great, it's great to see. I mean, the, the zoomness of this event at least allows us to be in conversation with you, despite being halfway across the country, which which makes it which makes it really uh, worth it, I think. Um, so uh, I'm just speaking for myself personally. I mean, I was a reporter in, in China for um, you know, more than a dozen years. And uh, and, you know, I never I mean, you've to be a journalist in China is to think about writing a book, right? It's one of those things that people ask you, even if you don't ask yourself, like, are you going to write a book? And, um, and, uh, I never wanted to write a, just a journalist in China book. And not because I don't love the, like the genre. I love it, but there's just so many good examples of it already. Right. I mean, from the very beginning over decades, there's just classics of that genre. And it sort of felt like, um, you know, it's frankly, just really difficult to top those um, books, right? And so I always figured if I was going to write a book, I wanted it to be about something specific. And, you know, in the course of, you know, I've done tons of stories over the year and some of them, you know, a lot of them have felt really significant. But this set of reporting, this series of stories that Lisa and I worked on um, for, the, for the Wall Street Journal starting in 2017 was just so, it just felt... Said, like it was scratching the surface of a really monumental change, right, um, in China, and and just you know the way that the Communist Party was 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 altering its the way it governs China and and, and what that meant for Chinese people's lives, right? The, 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 there was just a fundamental shift in how and how Chinese people were being were, were relating to the government, to technology, to themselves to their own aspirations. And it just sort of felt like the sort of, it felt like the kind of thing that required more sort of space than, than you could get in a newspaper article. Right. It just, and, and it was something, it was a story that I wanted to sit with for longer. And I, I was, and I was hoping, you know, the readers would also kind of want to want to sit with as well. Yeah. And I guess, you know, on my part, like, like Josh, 
I've been in China for quite a while, uh, you know, eight years in total. And if and if I ever thought about writing in China a book, because I covered China tech in China, uh, I covered the stories of Alibaba, I covered the stories of Tencent. I never expected to be this. You know, if I had to focus on something, I never expected it to be surveillance. Uh, what really, I guess, nailed it for me that this was worth exploring and deeply researching was, I think, the fact that, you know, in 2017, um, when when we stumbled on this company since time, which is China's largest AI company, the, when we interviewed them and we went down to their showroom to see what surveillance systems they, de- they were developing, it was just so jarring that it felt like we were living in a movie. People people who live in China always feel like they're living in some sort of bizarre, kind of haphazard, chaotic movie, but this was absolutely different. And I knew that it would have bigger repercussions down the road. Uh, and these like AI-enabled surveillance systems, when they started popping up in Xinjiang, that was when I knew, you know, something really sinister was afoot and we should have looked, we should look closely into it. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I found this book so um uh educational at a and kind of expansive and um and um exploring sort of one of the most important questions in China at a time when um when there is so much surveillance about I think just this very subject and this dampening of um of uh, more than dampening, I think this repression of free speech. So to me, this th- this book felt very um, very timely at a time um, when uh, control, I think, extends to um, you know the the birth of you know um, of 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 books on this subject. Um, I also uh, just love the way that. Um, the the personal narratives, um, whether of, of someone kind of trapped in lockdown during COVID or of um, a Uyghur family, is threaded with these larger questions of control and surveillance and what it's what is it like to be living in and through um, these systems. Can I mean? Can you and I? I mean, as a writer, really marveled at the way that you guys, um, you know, massaged kind of these to um, the personal narrative with the exploration of these larger um, sociopolitical questions. I mean, um, I really marveled at the, how, how seamless it was. Can, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, the writing, the writing process and how, um, I mean, how kind of you made sense of the beast that is inevitable, uh, inevitably kind of the process of book writing? Yeah, that was a, um, that was a challenge right from the beginning. You know, I think that, you know, particularly when you're writing about China, right, the the way that China exists in the American imagination or the Western imagination is really, I mean, it's still, you know, often a kind of this monolithic, strange, exotic place across the ocean. And, so we knew that writing about this topic, it would be easy. Partly, we knew this partly because there were sort of other books that had touched on it, but we knew that it would it would be easy to sort of create a, a sort of detached, kind of menacing, but like one dimensional or you know maybe two dimensional sort of Big Brother sort of apparition, you know, and and, and that the people would be scared of, and you know, and maybe that would sell books. It probably would sell books, but. But, you know, like we really wanted to to sort of, you know, as people who had lived in China for as long as we had, right, we we really wanted to conjure China in as much of its complexity as possible. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a country of 1.4 billion people. You know, you can never capture even a fraction of it in a, in a book. But, but we wanted to try to do that as much as we could. And we particularly wanted with this subject to look at how it affects lives, right? How it affects, like, what does it mean for an actual human being to sort of go through this and what do they think about, right? And what are the, what are the questions that they weigh? And, um, you know, and, and, you know, there are multiple aspects of the surveillance state in China, right? There is this really kind of dystopian, just terrifying, dark, 
expression of it in Xinjiang and in, in the northwest part of China, which, you know, uh, I'm sure people watching are familiar, but, you know, there's a, the, the Communist Party has been running this, this just unprecedented, um, really kind of shocking forcible assimilation campaign against, against Turkic Muslim, uh, groups there, including Uyghurs, right? And they're using, they're using these technologies to, to just, to, track and categorize every, basically every single individual in that region, right? And it is like this, the, the surveillance there is suffocating. It is inescapable. It is constant, right? And so what is that experience? What is it like? I mean, how many people have ever actually lived in that? Probably actually no one, right? To that point, um, when they were rolling it out, the Uyghurs, it was a unique experience kind of in history. Um, and so we wanted to explore that, but we also wanted to see what it was like for people who lived in like wealthier cities on the East coast, you know, who had a totally different experience of the, ex of essentially the exact same technologies in some cases made by the same companies. Right. And, and, and like, what are the, how do they weigh the, the costs and benefits of being tracked all of the time? And, and how are those calculations different? And, um, you know, the writing of it was a challenge, right. It was, it was kind of trying to, how to balance, you know, how to kind of dive in and out of these narratives, right? So that so that people are sort of keeping track of the big picture, but not, but also able to sort of stick with the story. And that was, you know, that that's partly why this book took so long to write. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was what we were trying to trying to do. And in terms of the reporting, in terms of the reporting process, like we wanted to ground like every chapter in the narrative. So how it played out would be, we would interview dozens of people. And eventually settle on one person whose story we felt really needed to be told. And once that happened, it was a matter of spending just a lot of time asking this person, can you recollect, you know, what happened last week? Right down to the very detail of, you know, when you woke up and you saw when you got a phone call from uh, a government authority. And in this case, I refer to a girl that I interviewed who basically she was tracked after she had left the Chinese city of Wuhan after COVID had um, broken out there and government officials tracked her down using cell phone signals, you know, one of the users of the surveillance state. And she, she was asked to, once she was tracked down, she was asked to quarantine and isolate herself for 14 days. So you'd have to ask her, you know, what, what were you doing or where were you when you got that call? Um, what, what does your room look like? What did your room look like then? Or if you were eating, what were you having then? And that, that, that all just made the book a much more richer experience. Um, yeah, no, that very much. I, um, uh, I, could, I could tell kind of um, uh, that there was kind of this very delicate balance in the book between exploring the bigger questions and grounding them in, you know, narratives that made us appreciate what um uh what lives how these lives are lived but it also made me um <laughs> as a writer um get a sense you know appreciate the difficulty of such a um such a pro project and given its difficulty i think um i think you guys were actually very expedient <laughs> um uh <laughs> Um, uh, 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 you know, shorter, you know, less complex books have taken um, far longer. Um, but uh, so one, you know, um, uh, one, you know, thread throughout the book is this, I mean, which um, uh, you guys explore in length is China's perspective, especially the Chinese government's perspective of equating stability with control. And, um, and I think that is, um, that was really important. And I think the book um, made that really kind of gave us an ample um, idea of why, you know, that is and how technology becomes a instrument of control. Um, would either kind of one of you um, like to talk a little bit about kind of the, you know, stability and control really kind of um, give us a sense of the government's rationale for drawing this equal sign between the two? Because I think this is at the heart of so much um, how the Chinese government um, justifies its draconian measures. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, Jiang. I think like, you know, I've been thinking about this in particular now because we have Xi Jinping, right, coming up on, uh, the, the 20th party Congress 
this next month where he's expected to, you know, sort of basically be, be named, uh, well, people are expecting he, he will he could take a third term and essentially be, be president or, or head of the party for life, right? And so inevitably there are all these, these comparisons to Mao, right? Because, you know, she is, is, is probably the most powerful um, leader, arguably the most powerful leader since Mao. And so, I, you know, the thing about the differences between the Communist Party under Mao and the Communist Party since, right? And Mao, you know, he's sort of ruled by, um, you know, like a lot of revolutionary leaders, just through through sort of sheer force of, of charm and will uh, and charisma, and 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 the and he was a really kind of chaotic uh, influence or, or you know a chaotic leader. And China basically since then has the Communist Party since Mao, since the Cultural Revolution ended, has has really prioritized stability over everything. They've sort of made it um, just a core a core element of, of how they rule. And that, and what's interesting is that they've sort of sw- they've changed the way that they go about cultivating stability, right? So. You know, in the immediate kind of reform era, sort of starting in the late 70s, early 80s, it was all about economic growth, right? It was about delivering sort of economic well-being, or at least the possibility of economic well-being uh, to Chinese people. So for and and it was extremely successful, right? For like three decades, you know, it was double-digit economic growth, you know, a bunch of the time. Um, everyone sort of felt like you know, if they weren't getting rich, they had the possibility of getting rich, and and or the and and they were watching their standards of living go up. And you know, the the, the social contract at the time with the Communist Party was, "We'll do this for you. Just you know, don't call for us to be taken down. Don't call for democracy. You know, don't make too much trouble." And that that and that's that was a stable, um, extremely successful model for many many years. But that model is kind of fraying now. Um, you know, and, and that's partly natural, you know, there's just no country in the world and in, in, in history has ever maintained the levels of, of economic growth that China has, ha- has had. So it was, it was bound to slow down. And, uh, and then, you know, other factors like COVID, for example, or have, have sort of accelerated that, that process, right? So China's economic growth now is, is close to zero. Um, it might even be negative. And, so what do you, how do you replace that if you're the Communist Party, right? How do you maintain stability and maintain legitimacy? Uh, and, you know, really what they've been doing over the past few years, as we discovered, is, is kind of offering a, you know, a technologically enhanced life that is sort of safe and convenient and predictable, right? And so, um, you know, they can use these technologies to, to kind of, just make your life easier, right? They make tra- they make traffic flow better. They make it easier to sort of you know you can scan your face to get on the subway. You can make you can pay for basically anything you want to pay for on your phone, and that you know that's really the sort of new um, that is what they that is what they are betting on. Yeah, I mean it. Um, it uh, I mean the, the line kind of in the book that really struck me was kind of how technology enables the party to anticipate the needs of, you know, the people rooting out the rest of its power. And it occurred to me that it, it was exactly the kind of um, paternalism that underlies Chinese Communist Party that has um, underlied its control kind of since the, um, since the beginning um, that at its best, it's, it's kind of this, father-like figure who's saying, I will, like, you are my children, I will know what you need before, um, before, uh, before you do. And it kind of reminded me, um, of, um, uh, uh, of how, um, a pair, you know, young friends of mine who've just become parents in the age of digitalization, where you can keep track of, everything um on your on your phone in fact and um the baby is like three months old and um everything it's been fed and everything it has voided has been documented meticulously and has been and um i joked that if this baby ever became the president i mean the presidential archives would you know would require multiple libraries because you would have since 
birth, like from the baby's, you know, first shit, like would be um, would be recorded. <laughs> and um, and it occurred to me that that is something. I mean, as these very, you know, these friends of mine are very, very good parents, and basically, you know, they explained. They said, "Well, I need we need all this information basically to make the best prediction of what how she will be possibly malnourished or like you know why is she acting cranky like all this the collection of all this information is to basically prevent any like prevent medical crises from before they can even occur and i wondered if either of you kind of had thoughts on um you know obviously there is a like draconian paternalistic um uh, ideology at work here but is there an argument for um for i guess my friends my 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 um friends who are parents kind of way of thinking which is that collecting all this information will um ensure that um uh the baby never becomes um you know a toddler becomes um uh you know sick kind of beyond you know the the the, the um beyond the baby beyond the parents ability to kind of you know take it to the to the to, to the er at the at the um at the earliest um uh at, you know at as early as convenience i mean is there an argument that it is you know preventing like crises from reaching a boiling point yeah, so I, I could probably take that. I mean, you're, what you're referring to essentially would be the attractiveness uh, of using surveillance to in in like ways that you know to actually help a city run more efficiently or help keep law and order on the streets, help keep streets clean. And and you're right, you know, it, smart cities basically use the same sort of surveillance systems that do like racial profiling in Xinjiang that do real-time tracking of the ethnic minority in order to oppress them. It's like two sides of the coin. Uh, the same sort of technology can be put to different uses. And, and this is one of the more interesting findings from our research, because we went into the boat thinking that state surveillance in China was inherently negative and sinister. But the more we dug into this and the more we spoke to people, particularly in the wealthier cities, the wealthy big cities on the East Coast, for example, the more I realized that there are aspects to state surveillance that are very alluring and attractive. So, to, right. yeah, so, so to, do, to do that, what we did was we profiled uh, a city called Hangzhou. And Hangzhou is on the eastern coast of China. It's not as well known as Shanghai, uh, but it's actually home to the Chinese internet giant Alibaba. And it's also home to the world's largest surveillance camera maker, which is called Hikvision. Um, and because of this reason, Hangzhou as a city government is just very embracing of using tech to digitize every sort of like city, um, every, every, every means of running a city. So they've actually used the same surveillance systems um, and made by often like Hikvision as well, which made the same systems in Xinjiang. They're using these systems to smooth out traffic, for example. So you would have cameras at every road intersection in Hangzhou, and they would be you know, figuring out what the density of the cars were at that point in time. And using that combined with other data, such as GPS from the maps on the cars, they would use that to optimize traffic lights. So in days of uh, heavy traffic, your traffic lights will be green for a longer time. Um, and, and so on. And, and I think the other really interesting thing that the interesting use that we found uh, of image recognition and like surveillance cameras in these cities is the city cameras would easily spot, uh, for example, cars illegally parked on the street. And, you know, that would be something so those spot cars parked on the street and they would flag it to the law and order officials who would come to essentially get rid of the car as soon as possible. This would be something that would have in the past taken much longer because you had human patrols. Um, and in this in this case, with surveillance camera and AI, you have a, a patrol like someone patrolling 24 seven, someone flagging out uh, incidents in the city happening 24 seven. And it wasn't just that um, you could use the same AI systems to 
discover flooding in a city when in times of heavy rain or missing manhole covers, which can be very dangerous, particularly if you have children running around. So there were these very attractive aspects to state surveillance and the people that we interviewed in the city, they knew that a lot of data was being taken, but they're very happy to make the trade-off because they got something in return. Yeah, that was, I mean, one of the really, I mean, there was um, uh, really interesting questions that the book raises is the, um, is the value of privacy to the Chinese. Um, I thought that was something, um, I, was, I, w- I was very grateful that that subject was being explored because that was something, uh, having grown up in China, um, uh, not really having known even the term um, uh, until um, you know, later, uh, later in life, um, it just didn't, uh, it, did not, it, it, it doesn't quite have um, the same uh, value and importance to the average American as it does to the average Chinese. And, um, and I, you know, in the, in, in the book, you know, you very, um, uh, you guys talk about how, um, I mean, you quote a certain, you know, um, she being a very well-known art, um, Chinese uh, artist as saying, you know, the idea of privacy largely belongs to, you know, is to the wealthy um, and the educated. It's the province of the wealthy um, uh, and the educated. And I wanted to um, uh, to ask about how um, that, you know, was that for the two of you, you know, through writing this book, um, was that a surprise to learn? And that did, it, did that at all kind of affect um, your view about the kind of mass surveillance that the government is um, undertaking that the Chinese um, have, I mean, at least some, you know, uh, a good number, a, um, a good fraction of the um, of population have such a different idea of privacy than um, Americans? Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the most fascinating and I mean, actually sort of difficult parts of this whole process, writing this book. Right. And um, I mean, many, many sort of aspects of the story evolved or swerved as we were writing it, which is, again, partly partly why it took longer than we, we'd hoped. But, um, yeah, privacy was really fascinating. And, and actually, Xu Bing, the, that story sort of evolved as we were reporting it. Right. So the so the background of this is that. You know, Xu Bing is this this extremely well known artist. I think he's got a MacArthur. He's a MacArthur genius, and um, and one of the things he likes to do is just uh, he's really interested in this idea of transformation um, and of and, and of taking things out of one context and putting them in another. And and so uh, he had we had encountered him at an event, and and he uh, I had just asked him you know what his, what he was working on. And he's like, oh, I'm you know making a a movie out of surveillance footage and. Um, and actually, this is before we even were really looking in surveillance as a story, but I'd sort of filed that away in the back of my mind. And then, you know, when we wrote the book, I went back to him. And and uh, and so what he, you know, he, he was really intrigued by this idea. He wanted to do this because he thought people who appeared in surveillance footage seemed more real than, than actors, right? And he just liked that idea. And he was intrigued by this notion that you could sort of somehow weave together. If you could get enough surveillance footage, you could weave it together into a fictional narrative. And um, and so, I mean, he, for years he tried to do it, but he couldn't because it was just too hard to collect. You know, he's collecting footage on tape from friends and the police and like, you know, officials he knew. And it was just like not feasible. But but eventually what he what happened was one of his research assistants was you know, searching the internet one day and, and stumbled on this website that was basically, was was set up by a, a company called Chihu 360, which is a internet security company, but they also produce these sort of cheap, um, you know, in-home security cameras, right. That are in- connected to the web. And, and they had set up a website, a uh, platform, right. Where if you owned a camera, you could access the video, the footage from that camera uh, online. And which is, which is, you know, a lot of cameras do this, but in Chihu's case, they, they made the default setting public, Right. So that if you knew about this website, you could go there and you could watch all of these people's surveillance footage. Right. And like, and, and, you know, if they didn't put a password on it, you, you could just, you essentially watch, watch what was going on in their homes or their businesses or wherever. And so this was like, a, you know, a bonanza for him. He immediately, you know, set about, he set up a bunch of computers, was downloading footage, you know, 24 hours a day. And then, and then he and a bunch of his assistants kind of 
weaved it together into this into this movie. And I just thought that was fascinating. He described it as sort of being like, um, you know, that these cameras had turned China into the uh, so like the, the version of the Truman Show, you know, the Jim Carrey movie about the, the guy who's sort of born in on a movie studio and a movie set, but he doesn't know it. And um, and so I, I thought it was just fascinating as a, as a sort of statement about Chinese privacy that there were that there were all of these feeds across the country. People seemed to not be bothered by them. They were actually entertained by them, you know, and it was like surveillance television. And uh, and so we were sort of writing up the chapter on that basis, right? Like, you know, here's an example of, of how how little Chinese people care about privacy. And, um, and, you know, shortly after he finished the film, he was taking it on tour in to these to, to various film festivals. And all of a sudden, the, the this controversy on blew up on the Chinese internet, on Chinese social media over these sites. There were multiple sites um, where, where a woman had, had sort of, she'd been watching the feeds and she pointed out like, you know, there were some inside like yoga studios, right? There were like clearly scenes that people probably didn't want in public, right? Or like, you know, children dancing, kind of creepy stuff, you know, or people having dates in restaurants where they were kind of like, you know, sitting close to bed together, being intimate. And, uh, and she wrote this this outrage post to the to the CEO of that company, and it and it just exploded. It became this massive thing, and within days, uh, the company had to shut down the site, and every other company that had one of those shut down their sites, right? And so we were like, "What is like what is going on?" You know, um, and I think what that pointed to was there is this sort of evolving privacy consciousness in China, but it's new, right? And it's really malleable and and unpredictable. And, you know, the, you know, I mean, it's funny, Jai, you're talking about not knowing the word for privacy until you were older. Well, you know, the word like yinsu, the Chinese word for privacy didn't appear in the Xinjiang or the, the, the Xinhua, like official Chinese dictionary until the late 1990s. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people didn't. You couldn't even look it up. Right. And. Right. And so, yeah, so like, I think now you have what you have is this very malleable, malleable idea. I mean, it is powerful, very powerful for some people, but it's, it, you know, it tends to be kind of directed mostly uh, at companies. Um, you know, the government is sort of, and the government has embraced it, but embraced it in a way that directs it in, in areas that it wants it to go, um, which is never at the, which is rarely at the government itself. Um, so, but, uh, but, you know, we also could, we could see this change, I think a little bit with the COVID pandemic, you might actually start to see it shift again. And it's, you know, so it's, it is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, um, in, 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 in the book, you guys talk about how it is, um, the government has conveniently welded the, the, the concept of privacy to, um, to that of collective security of the people and that, you know, um, you're giving up kind of this abstract concept that like you barely had a word for, you know, in the dictionary, even um, a few decades ago. And what you get is a safe and serene life, um, uh, which seems like a good bargain um, if, uh, you know, if, if like, privacy wasn't something that was terribly important or even kind of like clear to you as a concept. I mean, not, not too long ago. Um, I like how you guys, um, uh, and maybe Liza um, can talk about this, um, uh, um, the cons- um, how you guys also bring um, surveillance to the U.S. and, you know, the using it, you know, the way that, um, uh, the American police force, you know, have to, um, scan for, you know, shoplifters or, um, everything from shoplifters to, you know, January, January 6th, um, uh, the facial recognition, um, uh, software that allowed us or allowed, you know, the government to identify, um, you know, the people who stormed, um, the Capitol. So clearly America or the American government is also making is trying to strike this delicate balance between um, security and the preservation of um, uh, privacy. How, um, you know, uh, where, you know, what was it like reporting that out? And did it make you kind of change your mind at all about you know, America's position on the preservation of privacy? Did it, did it, did, 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 did the U.S. seem like its position, its position has been consistent in the, as the technology for surveillance has grown? 
Yeah, so the U.S. is definitely one where we've seen its position kind of shift, but it, it, the, the difference between the U.S. and China is like the scale and the breadth of the ambition that China is trying to achieve. In the U.S., a lot of the security cameras are privately owned. Uh, they're not government run. So, yes, there are a lot of uh, surveillance cameras in the U.S., but it's not all in the hands of the government. Whereas in China, you have more than 400 million cameras on the street, you know, all streaming video, all, all basically data that the national security agencies in China could easily get hold of. I think the difference for me when I was exploring surveillance in the U.S. versus China was how, you know, the concentration of so much data and all these data feeds in the hands of one entity. In, in the U.S., surveillance is not a new thing. Um, you've had government surveillance, and it particularly spiked after 9-11. And you also have what uh, Shoshana Zuboff has coined surveillance capitalism, where a lot of data has been sucked up by internet companies like Facebook or Google. The difference in China is that, you know, in, in, so in the U.S., it's very fragmented. The data is either with corporations or with government entities uh, or state state security agencies. You know, when I think of the government entities with data, you think of the DMV, which has everybody's driver's license data. Um, and then, you know, the, it's very it's very rare to see the data basically being shared between the DMV, shared freely between the DMV and Google and the FBI. Whereas in China, what's different is the Chinese government has access to a lot of the data that its internet companies have as well. So if you think about what the Chinese government can gather, it can gather data from all its surveillance camera feeds. It also has access to data from Alibaba. For example, Alibaba runs e-commerce, so they know what you buy. It also has access to data from China's biggest social media app, which is WeChat. It's kind of like a WhatsApp, so the Chinese government wouldn't know who your contacts are. And all this because, you know, the laws in China just make it very easy for state security agencies to get that sort of data. So the difference between like China and the U.S. to me that really stands out is the ability to concentrate that data in one place and how one entity, which is the Chinese government, has access to it all. That's not something you see in the U.S. Yeah, I would just I was just say on the on the privacy aspect of sort of comparing the U.S. and China, um, you know, there are some sort of universal things we noticed that were really surprising, right? When we were asking, we were you know talking to people in China, and um, Zhang, I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience, right? But if you if you talk to people in China and you ask them, like, well, what do you think about all of this? Like, what do you think about being tracked by the government and the fact that they can read your WeChat messages and all that? And like, you know, the, the sort of default response is what, like, well, if you haven't done anything wrong. What do you have to fear, right? And that was like that was really common. You know, we were talking. You know, we talked to you know, got dozens of people, hundreds of people, just to get their feet, their responses to this sort of thing. And I started to think of that partly because I lived in China for so long as just like a Chinese response. You know, like it was like okay. Um, but then you know, when I went to the U.S. in the, in the middle of writing this book, uh, I just I remember this vividly standing in JFK in the in the airport in New York City in line and listening to a couple discuss um, discuss a, a an article in in a Western newspaper about China's state surveillance and the and the and the wife being like oh my god can you believe it and the husband delivering the exact same line basically saying well why like if you don't if you haven't done anything wrong you don't need to worry about it right and it was just like it was so striking that that was you know. It's, it's it's sort of I think it's a default for a lot of people around the world, right? I don't, I think it's a really common attitude, and so I think you know Americans in particular are. I mean, speaking of Google or Amazon, Facebook, Americans are very willing to give up personal information for for convenience, right? Um, it's just that they don't. It's it's not in the hands of the state, right? And so that the, the big difference is, as as Lisa says, is you know in China it's a much starker the pay, the trade offs are much starker. Right. I, I, I liked, I mean, part of the, um, one of the nice things about, you know, the book taking uh, multiple years to complete is that you guys got to address the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and I, um, and I think the pandemic, I mean, um, uh, I think the pan pandemic was um, an occasion for which surveil, you know, where you, um, 
these surveillance tools were both um, able to show their advantages and um, and kind of the disadvantage of being completely imprisoned by the information that they um, that they that they yield. Um, how did that? I mean, you, <laughs> um, how did reporting kind of on the state of like? Did you guys go into the pandemic expecting surveillance to um, you know sh- um, shape? the um you know the the the, the pan- pandemic response in one way what did this kind of or did you feel like yes like you know in 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 case of a once in a century plague surveillance um has its uh, upsides like what you know what was your thought process um as you were witnessing you know the the, the relationship between surveillance technology and the response to the pandemic yeah, the pandemic was really unexpected for us. Uh, I, I guess, you know, like China, nobody saw it coming. So when the pandemic actually hit, um, we had no idea about the implications of state surveillance. It was only as it started to unfold, we realized that China was turning its entire state surveillance apparatus against tracking the virus. Um, because when the pandemic first broke out in the city of Wuhan, uh, they, they had announced that they were going to shut the city uh, at 10, 10 a.m. the very next day. And because there were so many people worried about being shut in the city, uh, in, in the city itself, and it was also Chinese New Year, so it coincided with the, like the one time everybody travels back to see their family. So before 10 a.m. the next day, hundreds of people rushed to the train station to leave Wuhan, hundreds of people who have, would have been close contacts of possible carriers of the virus. And what the Chinese government did next was really surprising uh, and it shocked me, but it realized how, it, it showed me how powerful state surveillance was. The Chinese government basically asked the state telcos to hand over data of whose cell phone, whose cell phone number was in Wuhan at that point of time. And it's in China, it's very easy to link your cell phone number back to the identity because in order to buy a SIM card, you have to register with the ID card. So every, um, the, the government knows uh, who owns this particular number. And that was how they managed to catch the first wave of people who were leaving from Wuhan and to ask them to isolate themselves in order to prevent the spread of the virus. Yeah, and then that was really kind of eye-opening for me because in the past I had always been researching how state surveillance was catching something physical. A person, for example, you know, a person of interest or a physical object like a getaway car. Uh, and, and in this case, the state surveillance system was trying to track something that was completely invisible, left no tracks, and was way more contagious than, you know, police could react. It was like a three or four day incubation period. It was very, it, to me, it felt like a monstrous challenge, but the Chinese government took it on. And in the early days, at least in the first year of COVID, they managed to keep COVID down extremely, extremely well. So that was one of like the more interesting findings from COVID. The second really interesting thing to me that stuck out when I was um, just watching COVID play out was how, you know, early in the days of our book research, we used to talk to experts that would say that would tell us every sort of surveillance system you see in Xinjiang, every sinister surveillance system will eventually find their way out of Xinjiang to the rest of China. And at that point, I just couldn't believe it. I figured that maybe in the more uh, in the regions, the communist government felt more restive. That could be possible, but not in like the wealthy cities like Beijing and Shanghai. It just didn't seem plausible. But with COVID, we saw like surveillance go from real-time surveillance of a group of ethnic minorities to real-time surveillance of everyone in China. Because ultimately, everyone in China, they were forced to download an app that tracked their movements for the past 14 days in order to uh, assign a QR code for them. And this QR code would essentially be a health score telling like officials on the street who are checking your QR code, you know, were you exposed to a COVID carrier or not? Um, and, and this is like one of the big takeaways for COVID for me. Yeah, um, I can definitely, I can definitely, um, uh, I can definitely kind of, you know, see, um, see how that, um, uh, you know, affects just in general, kind of the, the kind of both sides of um, of 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 um, how it is a, a, a fantastically efficient instrument, but also how <laughs> um, it kind of can easily be um, uh, it can 
be easily be misused. I um, have been have been asked to remind everyone to please um, uh, share you know questions you have over um, YouTube chat and um, uh, and there's one um, I see now. Uh, to what extent has you know does the Chinese government um, surveillance already extend to Taiwan? Um, would either of you like to take that on? Sure, I can take that one. Um, uh, actually, I just recently, um, I, I've been living in Taiwan, uh, actually recently, because I was, um, since I was, I was expelled from China in early 2020, in the middle of uh, writing the book. Um, yeah, you know, interestingly, I mean, you know, China claims Taiwan as, 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 as part of, the Communist Party claims Taiwan as part of China, but it really isn't. Um, and it really doesn't have the ability on its own to conduct surveillance inside of Taiwan. I mean, it, it definitely conducts, conducts surveillance of Taiwan sort of remotely, um, just like, a, you know, any country would with another, you know, could do with another country. But, you know, where Taiwan is actually really fascinating is on this question of COVID, right? Because the way they handled it, and, you know, one of the questions that, that sort of hovers over this entire story is how are democracies going to deal with this? Right. Because China, so China has a very clear vision for how these technologies fit into a system of government. Right. And they sort of believe that governments should use these, um, use these technological capabilities and future technological capabilities to the greatest extent possible to maintain control and manage society. Right. It's just a very simple, clear, um, vision. What did, like, what do democracies do? How do democracies confront these tools, which are extremely powerful, right, as, as COVID has shown, um, but, but can really obviously, you know, kind of just destroy privacy um, and, and, and sort of and have really interesting implications for, for things like free will, right? Um, and so Taiwan was really fascinating because when COVID hit, um, Taiwan reacted really quickly. It had had previous experience with SARS um, and it did institute surveillance, but it did it in a very deliberate, like deliberately limited way that was trying to protect as much privacy as possible uh, while still being effective. And so, you know, where China has apps, um, Taiwan deliberately did not build an app, right? They, because they felt like it wasn't secure. You know, anytime you build a new app, there's all sorts of flaws in it. You could be leaking data and, and, and it really wasn't necessary. So instead they just used cell phone data, right? So they could, they could track they could do contact tracing through cell phone data. It wasn't as accurate, but it was accurate enough, right? Um, and they did other things like, you know, if, if, if people had to report, um, you know, going to restaurants or bars, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to people to know uh, where they, what they were doing or where they were going, they could, they could leave like an anonymous email address instead of their own email address, you know, as long as the government knew who it was connected to. So things like that. Um, and it, and it, it worked, you know, it was, it was quite, you know, people accepted it. Um, and, and Taiwan was able to, to control COVID quite well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you guys do address the, I mean, that question of how um, democracy um, or at least you asked that question of how democracy should be handling um, or could be handling these um, uh, these instruments of surveillance. And one question I, you know, I had while reading was um, how um, long can this bargain um you know the government has made with the people be sustained or and and and, and um, in a way, how, um, at what point or if, you know, the Chinese, um, will ever outgrow kind of their, um, you know, their, 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 um, rather, um, the, you know, their, their definition of, um, privacy and their sense of, um, it's, um, limited kind of use. Like, do we do? Did either of you think that you know, in a generation or two, um, that the Chinese would evolve, that the people would evolve to a point where they um, uh, prize privacy much more than they do now? Right. Um, 
I, you know, I, I don't know. You know that, I mean, obviously, that's sort of uh, it's always dangerous, uh, as anyone who writes about China knows, to, uh, to, to project too far into the future. Um, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting question. And people have asked this, um, you know, people who, who, who look at surveillance or privacy in China ask this question often. Right. And and, um, you know, COVID actually is a, is a good example of this. Right. Where you now there are some people who are sort of who started to kind of rebel a little bit against the zero COVID policies in China, right? Because they're so stringent and the technology and, and the other control measures are so suffocating. Um, and it's also targeting wealthy people, like the pe- people who we were talking about earlier, uh, who, who sort of in the, in the cities, well-educated, who had developed a sense of privacy. They are starting to feel levels of surveillance and, and, and scrutiny that, that previously, you know, only were sort of reserved for minority ethnic populations or criminals or that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, you know, so you are starting to get some pushback, some pretty strong pushback. And, and so one question is whether, you know, COVID is actually going to be the, you know, if it, in the first phase, it was this event that really spread surveillance around the country and, that, and a lot of people accepted it. And now, you know, in the second phase, is it going to be actually the event that turns people against surveillance? It's, it's really hard to, hard to answer. Um, yes, go on. Oh, no, I, w- I was just going to add that, you know, the base of privacy awareness in China is currently so low. I just can't see it happening in the near future. Um, I, I think the difference between like the U.S. and Western democracies in China is really the privacy awareness. And in the U.S., you know, you had um, from the, the 1890s, like the right to privacy written by Samuel Brandeis and uh, Lewis Warren. It, it's in China, it's only been in the last couple of decades that Chinese people have really started to understand and grasp what it means to have your data taken from you and exploited. Um, and the reason why I'm actually not very optimistic that uh, this level of privacy awareness will grow quickly is because the bulk, half of Chinese um, citizens still don't live in the big cities. Uh, a lot of the privacy awareness that we've seen have, has come from people in the big cities. And it's really about the hit space, right? If you don't have the mind space to think about the idea of privacy, why would you? And if you're not living in the city, you're likely living in you know, a, a more poorer county or in the rural countryside where things like putting material, where like material wants and physiological needs are are just way more prioritized and important than the idea of privacy. So I'm actually not very optimistic on that front. I think I might um, agree with you um, on that. I, um, you know, reading this book made me, you know, and um, the idea of kind of the future of surveillance in China and um, the the priority of privacy in um, Chinese citizens' minds made me think about how um, helpless, like how much more helpless one can feel if they um, come to prioritize something that they cannot control. Like, um, you know, I remember when in the U.S., when, you know, everyone suddenly found out that Facebook had all this data and there was just this kind of, you know, that, that there were these mechanisms where like you could then switch the settings where like you could, you know, um, um, go to the media about how violated you felt and how um, with surveillance, I mean, and with kind of your own opinion about your, like the value of your privacy, there's nothing you can really do about um, how that's taken from you in an, you know, authoritarian country and, um, and how it actually is to your, like, to the detriment of your mental health to, to, to value your, um, to value your privacy, because it's not like then you wake up tomorrow and, and have the tools to, to, to engage with that. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a, I mean, you know, I think that's one of the lessons of China, right. Is that that, things can come at you fast, basically, right? And like the, the way that these systems have been rolled out, especially now with, with COVID sort of nat- so that they cover everyone in the country is, I mean, it's hard to imagine how anyone in China can resist, right? The, the, the tools the Chinese government has now to exert control are just so pervasive and so fast, right? They're just, they're so, they react so quickly. Um, and, it, you know, and, you know, sort of combined with, with, 
Xi Jinping, you know, China's leader, the the sort of his own willingness to to deploy these technologies kind of to their fullest extent, it really makes it hard to to, to see how you can resist. And I think that's, you know, if you if you're living in a democracy, that is something to think about, right? I mean, I think anyone who, you know, anyone who thinks about these issues realizes that democracies were sort of not prepared for Silicon Valley, right? We like we weren't, we didn't see it coming, we didn't know how to react to it, you know. And by the time we started thinking about it, you know, companies like Google and Amazon, Facebook, they all had, they all owned huge amounts of our data, right? And so it's kind of too late to roll that back now, and we and we have to sort of struggle to figure out how to manage it. Um, there is, you know, we're still kind of at the early stages of of, of the state surveillance rollout in, in the United States. Um, I mean, it's there, it's, and it's not going to ever be reversed. But I think that is the question that that hovers over democracies: is how do they get in front of this? Or people who live in democracies, people who vote in democracies, like how do you how do you get ahead of this, and how are you going to manage it and 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 you know regulate it so that it doesn't you know we don't get to that point of no return? Yeah, I mean, um, I think you guys mentioned, you know, having proportional responses, which I thought, I mean, because there's, because there's such a, you know, because there, because there, there's, there's just no easy answers to this question, kind of having, you know, do we, do you need facial kind of profile, like profiling for, um, minor crimes? Um, you know, it, it, is that, is that, um, is that like sacrifice of your privacy worth it versus um, kind of, you know, when it means much greater harm to, um, to a large number of people. And I guess most importantly, who gets to make that decision about, you know, proportions um, about, about, you know, what, (laughs) um, what activity is worth surveilling versus um, ones in which, you know, we, we rather keep, Everyone would rather keep their privacy, you know, and some small minor crimes will will will, will fall um, through the net. I thought it was um, uh, in China it was very interesting um, when uh, I did a piece um, a few years ago on on. Um, on uh, on filters, on kind of these facial filtering apps, um, and uh, where you can basically give yourself plastic surgery, kind of um, uh, um, on the on the apps. And now I see so so many of like so much of that is coming to the to, to, to the U.S. I mean, it's really it's really spreading. Like um, uh, it, it's it's becoming very popular here. But when I would ask everyone you know, whether they minded my taking a picture of them, you know, kind of these people who are getting plastic surgery um, or, you know, these young influencers, um, because that's just what I had been accustomed to doing in the U.S. And um, everyone that I asked just thought the question, they only thought the question was kind of um, inexplicable because they just wanted to make sure they wanted me to take pictures of them, but they just wanted to make sure that it wasn't on the native camera on the phone, that, that, their, that their faces were that, <laughs> that their face had them basically um, uh, digital, digitally altered <laughs> to be kind of their, their most attractive. And I thought that was so um, interesting. It wasn't like the question I was asking was about their privacy and, you know, and, and they were like, no, I just, like, I don't care if I look like myself. I don't care if people realize that like, this is me. I just want to be my most attractive self. Um, and I thought that was just such a, that was such an interesting, um, uh, I don't know if it's a miscommunication, but like just that, dif- like such an interesting example of this difference in values. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Actually, and you know what, what, I mean, an interesting factoid is that the, the companies that, that build a lot of the technology that sort of automatically smooth out your wrinkles and kind of give you like digital Botox are, um, are the same companies that do facial recognition technology. It's like the same, it's basically the same technology. Right. Um, and, uh, and they make, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So it's pretty fascinating. Uh, um, uh, and that, um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, back, I, I was thinking about how, um, uh, because the, the, they're so attuned to the faces and um, how you alter your faces and just kind of, um, uh, and how can you, and, you know, how to be plot to look plausibly human while kind of changing every single feature. I thought that must, I mean, how could that not, you know, be connected to facial recognition, right? It's all, <laughs> um, it's all about kind of, um, recognizing, you know, recognizing and also, um, improving, you know, upon the improving upon the, the face. Um, well, we have a last, uh, question here with about five minutes remaining and, um, it's about NE, EVs, which um, are which I'm 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 understanding to be new energy vehicles, um, and the question is, you know, with the rapid acceptance of new energy vehicles in China, um, uh, you know, there's an ever growing network of um, mobile cameras and sensors, um, which are in these uh, in these in these vehicles. What data is being sent to? Um, uh, new energy vehicle firms um, and the Chinese government. I know that's not quite kind of in the you know in the scope of the book, but um, you know, would either of you want to just give that a shot? Yeah, that that is actually a, a tricky subject that wouldn't really be in our expertise. But you know, I'll, I'll take a shot at just kind of explaining because it really falls. Uh, it's a similar corporate dynamic that you see with other companies that you would see with the new energy vehicle industry. I think with new energy vehicles, uh, a lot of these companies are also trying um, to improve like automotive technology with like auto- autonomous driving systems, for example. And because of that, they've been installing like mobile cameras and networks on um, and, and sensors on top of cars. Uh, most of the data that's being collected by these sensors and mobile cameras will be will be um, retained by the new energy vehicle firms simply because a lot of the data is used to refine whatever algorithms they're using. For example, with autonomous driving, just to make sure that you know, the car is stopping when there is like a obstacle ahead or if there's someone crossing. So a lot of the data would be retained just to reinforce and to feedback and to make their algorithms better. Whether they actually share the data with the Chinese government, it's still a very open question, and we haven't seen any cases of it so far. But what I could say is mapping data is extremely important and sensitive to the Chinese government. So this means that at least for the new energy vehicle companies, they would be under more pressure to keep their data secure um, and not exposed to like cyber security leaks, for example, because mapping data would give anybody data about military installations in China or where army bases are, are kept. And this is something that the Chinese government does not want to share. Um, so it's hard to say, you know, if the real-time data will be shared with the Chinese government, and honestly, I, I, I don't think so. But what, what we can at least conclude is such data will not be made public and will be subject to more scrutiny. I mean, I, actually, I, I do th- one, just wanted to add one thing here, which is if you want to – one, I think, sort of telling development in this space is that Tesla – um, Tesla vehicles, which are very popular in China, uh, and you know Teslas have num- immense numbers of cameras all, all over them, right, and sensors. They're banned from sensitive government compounds and military installations, right, because the Chinese government is is worried that that data will uh, the Tesla might end up sharing it with the U.S. government. So if they're worried about that happening in the U.S., um, I think you, you can maybe infer what they themselves would like to do with that data in China. China. Mm, no, that's actually, that's very, um, uh, um, uh, that's really interesting. I was just thinking that there, I mean, that increasingly just the world over, there are so few spaces um, where you are not surveilled in one way, you know, um, in one way or another. I mean, even I live in New York City and um, I live in the East Village and I asked my um, super about, you know, like is the East Village, like how, you know, I live really close to, I live on the second floor and there's um, 
the fire escape ladder, like, you know, anyone above like my height, five, four can basically pull it down. And, um, the lamp and the super looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, there are cameras everywhere. Like no one's going to burgle you because like their, their face will be so readily identifiable. He was like, it won't even matter if there's like a letter, a ladder directly from your bedroom window to like, you know, right. Like no one's going to, you know, no one's going to burgle you. Like it was, I mean, it was reassuring, but it was frightening at the same time. Like, um, yes. Like I, I mean, like I, I, I guess, you know, like that reduces the chance of being burgled. But it also made me think like, I mean, every inch of this city is under <laughs> under the lens of some um, camera. And what does it mean not to have like a single moment that's not um, that's not documented? And um, and uh, on that on that on that cheerful note, um, I really want to want to thank um, Josh and Eliza. I mean, the, you know, authors of this terrific book, um, Surveillance State Inside China: It's a Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. And uh, um, please pick up a copy um, at your local uh, at your local bookstore um, if you want to. Um, if you want to go, you know, deeper into the topics that we discussed, um, if you would like to watch more programs or uh, support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and impersonal programming possible, please visit the Commonwealth Club um, a website. That's commonwealthclub.org slash online. Um, I'm Jiayoung Fan. Um, take care and uh, have a great evening. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.